Let us hear now the word of God. Psalm 119 and verse 17. Deal bountifully with thy servant, that I may live and keep thy word. Open thou mine eyes, that I may behold wondrous things out of thy law. I am a stranger in the earth. Hide not thy commandments from me. My soul breaketh for the longing that it hath unto thy judgments at all times. Thou hast rebuked the proud that are cursed, which do err from thy commandments. Remove from me reproach and contempt, for I have kept thy testimonies. Princes also did sit and speak against me, but thy servant did meditate in thy statutes. Thy testimonies also are my delight and my counselors. Amen. May the Lord bless the reading of his word to us. Let's pray for the preaching. O Lord, our God, we come now to the preaching of the word, and we trust the word has already begun its work by the Holy Spirit on our hearts, but we come now to hear it preached, and we ask, O God, that thou wouldst bless the preacher who will preach now, that the minister who serves God and the people of God, that he would be given the words to speak that the Lord uh, himself would give. We seek to know not the mind of this man, but the mind of the Lord Almighty. And so we pray, O God, that Jesus Christ would increase because I must decrease. And we pray, Father, that the congregation as well would live their life under the word of God, that as it is preached, the word would conform them to the will and mind of God. And we pray in a day in which the minister's voice uh, is weak, that as the minister's voice is upheld, we pray by the spirit of the Lord. We would know truly it is not by might, but it is by the spirit that all things that are of any value to us are done. And it is not through the power of man. And so, Father, with all these things before us, we pray, open thou our eyes that we may behold wondrous things out of thy word. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the Christian is a stranger in the earth. The Christian is a stranger in the earth. You know, the world and its ways, in many ways, to the Christian, its ways are unfathomable to the born-again believer. Because this world is not the home of the one who is born again. The one who is born again, the one who has the Spirit of the Lord regenerating their hearts, knows that they are bound for a heavenly country, that they are just passing through in a pilgrimage through this world. This place is actually meant, and I want you to think on it this way, to be strange to you. This place is meant to be strange to you. You, you are to, the longer you live on this earth and the more sanctified you become, the stranger and more bewildering in some ways this place is, the more you feel out of touch with what goes on in this place. And you start more and more to see that this is not my home. And perhaps the part of this that we don't appreciate and are sometimes bewildered, though we ought not to be, is that we will become strange to the world. And that's the part that we don't often enjoy. But because we are strangers in this world, the world itself is going to look at us as something alien. And we have to be okay with that. 
even though because we are aliens to this world, because we are pilgrims headed to a heavenly country, we are going to, as you will see in this psalm, suffer shame. We will suffer reproach and we will even be hated and hunted at times by the enemies of God. Sad to say, the Christian who does not embrace their identity in this way as a stranger and pilgrim in this earth will find it very difficult to walk with the Lord Jesus Christ with constancy. Instead, they will have one foot in the door of this earth, this present world, and they will try to keep a toe in heaven. And none of that works. None of that works out. When there is reproach, when there is shame for following Christ, they will start to find that the toe that's dipped in heaven actually retreats. And they will find themselves, like Lot's wife, entirely embracing the world. And so if you don't embrace your identity as a stranger in this earth, you will have a hard time persevering to heaven. And you will find that you will, you will be tempted to give up on Christ himself and conform to this present world. But the Christian remembers that our beloved Savior was not of this world. And if the world hates us, it hated him first. And we then are not surprised to be hated by the world. Well, many of these matters are the substance of what you find in this third portion of Psalm 119. That those who sing it, if they are going to sing it in faith, are embracing this identity as a pilgrim on the earth. Recognizing that we are those who will suffer shame for Christ's cause and yet be undeterred in that, that we will, will continue to follow the word of God no matter how much reproach comes upon us. We press further into the word of God. That is the theme here in Psalm 119. We are not deterred. We follow Christ in his word. Come what may, because I know my time as a pilgrim will come to an end. And I am headed to a heavenly country. I am in the world, but not of the world, is what the one who sings this psalm says. And so our theme is, the pilgrim surrounded by his enemies seeks the word of God. The pilgrim surrounded by his enemies seeks the word of God. And we'll divide our psalm portion under the three heads on your bulletin. First is the Christian as a pilgrim. Second is the enemies of the pilgrim. And third is the way or the path of the pilgrim. So let's begin with the Christian as a pilgrim. Just for a brief recap of Psalm 119, before we exposit this portion, and I will be brief because this is the third month in which we have been in Psalm 119. Uh, I'll remind you, especially children, this is the great acrostic psalm that extols the word of God, especially extolling the beauties of the law of God. The psalm, as we know by now, is a Hebrew acrostic, 22 portions, each sequential, a letter in the Hebrew alphabet. Each verse of each portion begins with that letter of the Hebrew alphabet, each portion being eight verses exactly. And so this third portion, the third letter of the Hebrew alphabet, Gimel, every verse begins with Gimel in the Hebrew. Obviously, it doesn't follow that in the English translation because that is not easy to do uh, and be faithful as a translation. Now, each section of Psalm 119, as I've mentioned, does not always have a singular theme. 
However, this third section has a fairly strong strength of cohesion. Uh, the psalmist, if it were David, uh, regardless if it was David or not, was surrounded by his enemies. His very life being threatened, as you see here in the first verse of this portion, verse 17, deal bountifully with thy servant that I may live. Now, as he's surrounded by death, much of his meditation deals with why he's so hated. And the answer is really, as I've intimated, he is a stranger in the earth who keeps the commandments of God, who follows the Lord. While his enemies are those here, as you see in um, verse 21, are the proud and cursed, which do err from thy commandments. So those who are proud, those who do not keep the commandments of God, are those who would revile him. Yet, even though he is reviled for keeping the commandments of God, the psalmist in this portion does not let go of the word of God, but he instead finds it his joy and his delight in the midst of his adversaries to meditate on the word of God all the more. In the midst of all of his difficulties and all of his trials, all of his strain, all of the enemies coming against him, his life being threatened, where does he go? He goes to the word of God. And his meditation on the word is so sweet. And so in view of that basic context, let's begin with our identity in verse 19, the A portion. I am a stranger in the earth. Now you cannot sing this portion of the psalm with sincerity until you embrace that. Until you say, that is me. I am a stranger in the earth. Children, that word, you could translate it, foreigner. I'm an alien. I'm a pilgrim. That's what I am. Can you sing this psalm with sincerity until you embrace that truth? No. This is a fundamental portion of the Christian's identity. I am a stranger here. I am passing by. This, this world, the tent I pitch and everything else, it's like an inn on the way to my final destination. It's not home. What is your country of residence, Christian? Philippians 3.20 says, For our conversation that is citizenship is in heaven, from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Where he is is where our home is, as we've heard recently. Where he is is where our citizenship is. And great problems in our life arise when we don't embrace this wholeheartedly. You know, the world gets its hooks into you, doesn't it? Rather than rejoice when we suffer reproach for Christ's name, we're tempted to deny him. We're tempted to deny his commandments when the world calls us bigots and other things. And when the world calls us fools for preaching Christ and him crucified, we stop our evangelizing. When our worship seems strange and otherworldly and doesn't cater to the flesh, well, we're tempted to compromise on that as well because we don't see ourselves as strangers and pilgrims. And we don't want to be weird no, you are to embrace this identity and everything will flow from it. I am a stranger here. Let the world be strange to you, Christian, and let yourself be strange to the world. Your citizenship is in heaven. Uh, don't ever have it as anything less than a badge of honor if the world calls you strange for following the word of God. That's a badge of honor. I am a stranger in the earth. 
Now, if the psalmist's heart and mind on the matter is insufficient to persuade you, it shouldn't be insufficient, but if it is, you will find not just one or two witnesses to this truth, but you will find a great cloud of witnesses in the scriptures that testifies that the Christian is a stranger. You remember, don't you, in Hebrews 11, that great cloud of witnesses. We read of the ones who went before us. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off and were persuaded of them and embraced them and confessed what? That they were strangers and pilgrims in the earth. For they that say such things declare plainly what? That they seek a country. And truly, if they had been mindful of that country from whence they came out, they might have had that opportunity to have returned. But now they desire what? A better country that is in heavenly. Wherefore God what? Is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. This is our identity. This is the great cloud of witnesses that testifies what we ought to be in this earth. You and I, Christian, right? We embrace this truth when we yearn for and we ache for a better country. A heavenly country. You have that in seed form in the kingdom of God now. But what do you yearn for? What is this heavenly country? Do you even know? Now I've preached on heaven before, so I'm not going to be exhaustive here. But let's just think about these things. We yearn for a country with no sin. We yearn for a country where the lamb is the light and there is no curse to be found. We yearn for perfect and pure fellowship with God and with the saints of God together. These are the things that are promised to us in the word of God, just as we heard in Hebrews 11, in God's testimonies. Are you persuaded of them? And have you embraced them? And going from there, then, do you say, I desire a better country, and I am nothing more than a stranger in the earth. I say, in view of these promises, I don't want to be a worldling. I don't want to be one of the world. I want to be a citizen of this better country. Every godly saint you know, and if you know those who are particularly godly, just think on them. Think of especially those aged saints that you know in your life. What do they all have in common other than their love for Jesus Christ? They desire a better country. They saw themselves as strangers, haven't they? I ran through that exercise myself. All the godliest men and women I have known, they live not for this present age, but for the one to come. They mourn, but are content, even if friends turn on them for Christ's sake. They're fine to let goods and things go if Christ calls them to that, to sojourn from place to place on this earth if the Lord calls them to that, for theirs is a lasting heritage, and they know it. And it's not here. You know, you should feel, and I should feel too, I have a little bit of experience with this, with my family, uh, as the way immigrants feel, the way they feel when they immigrate to America, that this place is strange in a way. You know, our language is not their language. Our ways are not their ways, the ways of home. And immigrants often face a conundrum, don't they? Do I wholeheartedly embrace American culture and speech and dress or do I still retain the values of home? That's a conundrum we can talk about another time and how to integrate in a society. But the Christian faces on a spiritual level a similar conundrum. But the Bible says this, it's very plain, do not integrate. 
There is no integration. You are a stranger. You don't adopt the ways of this home, this land. This is not your homeland. You remain a stranger. Yes, the Christian labors to do good for their temporary residence, but spiritually he must never or she must never become a, or apply to become a permanent residence, so to speak. Not at all. We never adopt the ways of our temporary home when it conflicts with God's ways. You are a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, first and foremost. Your allegiance is to the constitution of the kingdom of God. And what is that, children? It's the word of God, isn't it? That's where our allegiance is found. Now, children, I hope you remember that Psalm 119 was especially made for the youth to memorize and keep close to their heart. And so for you, especially in this tender time, you must embrace this identity. Today, whether you're two years old, 15 years old, however old you are, I am a stranger in the earth. You must get it now. You must embrace it. You must not think like the world. You must not talk like the world. You must not walk like the world. You must not act like the world. Absolutely not. And what will drive you there is to say, I am a stranger here. And if all my friends mock me, laugh at me for Christ's sake, well, that's just the way it is, isn't it? I must be strange to them because I follow Christ. Again, the Christian is strange to the world and the world is strange to the Christian. And let me say this, if you're not strange to the world, something is very off in your walk with the Lord. That right there is a barometer, it's a test. Am I strange to the people of this earth? If the world finds you easy to have around, and I don't mean you, because you're pugnacious or something else that um, you know, they don't like to be around you. I'm talking about for godliness sake, they don't like to be around you. But if the world finds it easy to be your friend, something is wrong. Something is wrong. If they are not in some way offended or put off by you, for Christ's sake, something is wrong. If you find it easy to integrate with the world, on the other hand, something is wrong. There ought to be mutual discomfort. You should never be totally at ease with the people of this world. There's always something that's a little off. No, even as we love our neighbor as ourself, we don't become as our neighbor if they're unconverted. We want our neighbor through the gospel to become as we are, a citizen of heaven but we will not adopt their ways. And there must be an uneasiness between us until they are reconciled to God. Well, all that said, after he says he is a stranger in the earth in verse 19, the psalmist says, hide not thy commandments from me. You know, this is really the longing of the Christian who sees himself or herself as a pilgrim. They want the commandments of God. Because the word of God, the commandments included, forms our identity. It is our commitment to the book that defines us as strangers anyway, isn't it? You know, remarkably, the earliest Muslims called Christians the people of the book. Right? You remember that, I trust. Now the question is, would somebody of the world say that of you? That you are a person of the book? Christian, 
that you are one who longs for the commandments of God, longs for the word of God, would they say of you, whether they agree with your Christianity or not, that woman, that man, she or he is a person of the book. I don't believe that book, perhaps, but I know them as a person of the Bible. That's where we have to be. We have to be known as strangers in the earth because we are people of the book. I wonder if I ask your friends, so-and-so, are you a person of the book? Whether they would look at me really strangely, even if I said the book is the Bible. Would they know you that way? I trust everybody that is in your orbit knows you as a person of the book. Or would they laugh at the question? That person is a worldly, it's just like me. What do you mean he follows Christ or she follows Christ? May it not be so. Brethren, do you ingest the word into your soul as you heard last month in Psalm 119 verse 11? Thy word have I hid in mine heart. That's what does it. That's what does it, hiding the word of God in our heart. You know, famously Spurgeon once said of John Bunyan, prick him and he would bleed Bibline, right? That ought to be us, brethren. It should be the word. It should be the word. It should be the word that we are known by. It's the word that we know. It's the word that we even pray to God. Can you imagine praying this way? Hide not thy commandments from me. I want the commandments open to me. I want to know them. I want to know how to live as one of yours, Christ. Help me in this. Worldly Christians, on the other hand, share both a lack of knowledge of the word of God and a lack of living according to it. But a true believer, as a stranger in the earth, longs for the commandments of God. I have to say this again. Yes, we don't merit eternal life through keeping the commandments of God. No, Christ did that for us. Praise God. He followed the commandments beautifully. And if we have faith in him, we no longer see the commandments as a rule for our justification, true. But we follow it for our sanctification, that we would be conformed more to that heavenly man, Jesus Christ himself. It's part of the new birth to have this longing for the commandments of God. When we are converted we begin to see the beauty of the commandments of God. And we formed after Christ love the commandments. The new man is given eyes to see the beauty of the commandments and even praise as in verse 18. Open thou mine eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of thy law. How often have you or I gone to the word of God and said, open thou mine eyes that I may behold wondrous things, wondrous things out of thy law. That's where the heart of the Christian ought to be. These are wondrous things. These are greater than all the riches on the earth. You know, this is a bit on my mind as I think on the wondrous nature of the law and think of Christ keeping it with communion coming next Lord's Day. Lord willing, um, we will consider the third word on the cross. As he was dying for our sins in John 19, we read, when Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciples standing by whom he loved, he saith unto his mother, Woman, behold thy son. Then saith he to the disciple, Behold thy mother. And from that hour that disciple took her unto his own home. You know, in his agony, our Lord, lacking any comfort from either God or man, he looks on his own mother, she who bare him, she who nursed him. He remembered her. 
He honored her. He cared for her. He sent her to his own disciples' home so that his mother would be without, not be without a son. Now, are we not greatly moved by that episode in our Lord's life? And I pray we will be as we come to the table. But do we not see in that a wondrous demonstration of the law of God? Yes, Jesus kept it to save us. But as we look deep into a scene like that, we hold, behold the beauty of the law itself, of honor thy father and thy mother. We're seeing the beauty of the law and the God-man. And so we read, don't we, in Isaiah's prophecy of Christ, he will magnify the law and make it honorable. Isaiah 42, 21. So when we look on Christ especially, and we look on how he kept the law of God as it should be kept, we would see that we are fools if we despise the commandments of God. And we do not see these beautiful commandments as wondrous things to us. And we pray and plead with God that the word of God would be open to us and its heavenly matter would be revealed to us. Open thou mine eyes to behold the wondrous things that come out of the word. We even lament, don't we? Like rivers of waters run down mine eyes because they keep not thy law. Because why? The law is wondrous, wondrous to us when we understand it rightly. I wonder if any here have been brainwashed, especially in modern sort of evangelicalism, to think that the law of God is bad. You need to put that away. The law is holy and the commandment holy and just and good. Romans 7, verse 12. And when we look at the law of God with the eyes of the psalmist, which is really the eyes of faith by the Holy Spirit, opening our eyes, we see it as wondrous. And we see it as holy and just and good. And to keep it by God's grace is of great delight to the Christian and great reward. However, again, can't be exhaustive on these things. The more you do love the law of God, the more you seek to keep it, even as Christ kept it and was nailed to a cross for it, the more the reproach of the world will come upon you. And so let's consider that in our second head, the enemies of the pilgrim. Well, in John 15, 19, Christ says to you, and never forget it, if ye were of the world, the world would love his own. But because ye are not of the world, but I have chosen you of, out of the world, Therefore, the world hateth you. The world hateth you. The world hates you. And that has always been true. And that will remain true until Christ returns. You'll find that in this portion of Psalm 119 as well. Verse 22. Remove from me reproach and contempt, for I have kept thy testimonies. The Christian will suffer reproach, boys and girls, that is shame and contempt from those in the world, especially as they seek to follow the Lord. What's the reason from John 15? And marvel at this and rejoice in this, because Christ has chosen you out of the world. When you are reproached for his name's sake, you actually, the Bible says, are to rejoice and be exceeding glad, because it is a testimony that Christ has plucked you out of the world and has taken you to heaven. And you have a commitment to him and his word. And so the world will shame you. And what is yours now is a heap of shame and hatred from the world. 
and you're not to forget it, and you are to despise that kind of shame. You're not to care about it. You're to embrace it instead. And just think about it. I think children in our current society, you see it all the more. What is the Christian called? Simple-minded, bigot, narrow. Seek to follow his commandments and eyes will be rolled at you. When you say, like Jonah, calamity is coming unless you repent, you'll be laughed at. And great contempt is thrown your way. And imagine that for a moment, children, that out of love, you tell people to repent and, and embrace the Savior, and they mock you and scorn you. That is strange to the world, isn't it? But ought it be strange? No. Right? You should never suffer reproach. But we embrace these things because Christ our Savior has said these things will happen. We will be hated. And it's the savor of Christ that does it. Second Corinthians 2, For we are unto God a sweet savor of Christ in them that are saved, and in them that perish. To the one we are the savor of death unto death, and to the other the savor of life unto life. You know, the spiritual aroma of the Christian is otherworldly, because it is Christ-like. And to some, this will be deeply attractive, especially to the converted. But to others, you will be deeply repulsive. And you'll be hated, especially to those hardened in their sin. And don't forget it. Don't forget it, Christian. You know, sometimes even to the professing Christian, not truly regenerated, you will be repulsive too. That's often a case for great sorrow for us. But the cause is the same. Because we are truly in Christ. You will suffer shame and contempt from the world and you must expect it, brethren, if you keep the testimonies. That is the word of God. Now, the worst expectation you can have children at this age is to be expected, uh, is to expect to be liked by everyone. Especially the unbeliever. Put that expectation away. You will not be liked by everybody, especially if you follow Christ. In fact, I would like you to remember Luke 6.26. Woe unto you when all men shall speak well of you. So did their fathers to the false prophets. You have to remember that and not be uh, astonished. You know, what did the false prophets do? They preached what wicked men wanted to hear. They didn't preach the commandments of God. Well, what's their reward? Well, men spoke well of them. All men spoke well of them, after all. And they even found great reward and great employment. Many were, you remember Ahab's court? Many were employed by Ahab, probably had wonderful careers there. Just as liberal Christians and papists are often invited, invited to the world's parties and into the inner circle of politicians. But Christ says they have their reward with men. But their reward from God, woe, woe unto you when all men shall speak well of you. But the Christian often suffers reproach for even a simple faith in the Lord and a simple desire to please God. Now recently online, and I think some of you are in the same group, so you'll know what I'm speaking of. There was an online discussion of whether it's proper to watch movies, especially where there are men and women who are essentially kissing to produce the film, who are not married to each other. Is it proper to indulge in that? Well, regardless, of, because that's a seventh commandment violation, isn't it? 
somebody is kissing somebody who's not their own spouse, and we are imbibing that as entertainment. Now, somebody did bring up uh, one actor that some of you know, Kirk Cameron, that uh, you know he, for those scenes where it involved kissing, he brings his own wife into the scene and films it in such a way you can't really see her, but will kiss his own wife. Why is he doing that? He wants to keep the seventh commandment, doesn't he? He wants to love his wife. He cherishes his wife. He wants to honor his vow, the third commandment, to cherish her only. Yet what does a man like that receive, regardless of the quality of his films? Put that aside for a moment. What will a man like that receive from the world? The eye roll. Really? Really? Is that really necessary that you have to go to that length? It is strange to the world, isn't it? The man and others like him become a laughing stock and a reproach. But is it strange? Is it strange to love your wife in that way? Or is the world strange? It's the world that's strange, Christian. And so when they call you strange for keeping the commandments of God, you embrace it. You embrace it and say, I am a citizen of heaven. My wife is the apple of my eye, if this is a seventh commandment issue. And I will share what is most intimate only with her and her only. We are not really the strange ones at the end of the day. The world and its values are strange. The world is wicked. And because of that, we are strangers in a strange land. When you suffer reproach, you say, Oh, my soul, let my name be Gershom. For I have been a stranger in a strange land. That, of course, children is Moses' son's name. And so the psalmist asks the Lord to remove contempt from him. His argument is, he has kept the testimonies of God, so remove slander from me. Now, this is proper, by the way. It is proper. It is right to have a good name. And so the psalmist says, remove reproach from me. After all, you think about the argument here, right? The law is honorable. And so keeping the commandments of God, if he suffers reproach for that, that is a reproach on God's law itself. And so it becomes a reproach on God himself. It is a grievous thing to mock God's commandments. A grievous thing. But this is the argument. Remove contempt from me, for I have kept thy testimonies. Why should I be the contemptible one, O God, when they are contemptible in the sight of God? This is the argument in prayer. And so he brings the matter to the Lord to judge. He didn't take matters into his own hands, you'll notice. You recognize this when David was at his best, when he dealt with Saul, always trusting the Lord will vindicate and the Lord will defend. And so the psalmist prays that it would be the Lord himself for the sake of the commandments of God who would remove his reproach. Now, as you know, I'm not in the habit of lengthy quotes from other men, but Spurgeon's comments on this verse were very edifying and for me, quite encouraging. He said, the best way to deal with slander is to pray about it. God will either remove it or remove the sting from it. Our own attempts at clearing ourselves are usually failures. We're like the boy who wished to remove the blot from his copy and by his bungling made it 10 times worse. When we suffer from a libel, it is better to pray about it than go to law over it or even to demand an apology from the inventor. O ye who are reproached, Take your matters before the highest court and leave them with the judge of all the earth. God will rebuke your proud accuser. Be quiet 
and let your advocate plead your cause. Sound words from Spurgeon there. You know, I once saw online a minister friend of mine was, was slandered for something that he had preached and he would, ought never have been reproached and slandered for this kind of thing. And so I then brought it to his attention and uh, in case he had not known about it because he's not usually online. What he said is he would leave it with the Lord and he would pray for a softened heart. As Spurgeon said, we have a greater advocate in heaven anyway. Uh, let us do what we are to do, which is to keep Christ's testimonies, and we will let Christ defend us when we are slandered and pray for his help. You know, he has a way of removing shame from his servants and casting the craft, catching the crafty in their craftiness and in their schemes. The Christian ultimately will be vindicated. Every Christian will be vindicated for the reproach that they suffer for the name of God. All of you will be if you have suffered in that way. On the day of judgment especially, how you and I will be vindicated and the tables will be turned Christian. You need to be patient and I need to be patient too. You will be vindicated openly before the enemies of God by Christ himself. There is a day of judgment coming and you need to remember that and you need to press on if you are slandered by the enemies of God. The tables will turn. This is what's so wondrous, isn't it? He who was judged by wicked men will judge wicked men. Christ our Lord. And in the same way, the Christian who has been reproached and reviled and persecuted by wicked men will be openly acknowledged and acquitted and vindicated before all the enemies of God who will then be set to their doom. Well, in like manner, you have verse 23, and I'll try to get through the rest of our time together a bit swifter. Princes also did sit and speak against me, but thy servant did meditate in thy statutes. The rulers of the nations speak against the Christian. They speak against Christ and his bride. We are seen as the ones who trouble society. We are the problems because we are the ones who hold a testimony for God for his ways and his commandments. And they know that ultimately, and this is the beautiful thing, no one can control the Christian but Christ. We are under his control. We are under his authority. And we say that if any authority comes between us and the Lord's will, well, we must rather follow God rather than man. You remember in the lockdowns, it was the Christian who was singled out as the troubler of the nations because they wished to control the worship of God. And we wish to worship God, willing even to die for him. Well, what do we do as a response in verse 23? But thy servants meditate in thy statutes. Now, we remember ourselves not only as strangers, but also servants. We are servants of God. We are not servants of the world's powers, ultimately. We are servants of Christ. And we remember that and recall that God is judge over all, he is King of kings and Lord of lords. Christ is Messiah, the Prince. We serve him and then we meditate on his word. And where are we going to go into his word? There are many places to meditate on the word. But when princes arise against us, what about something like Psalm 2? Be wise now, therefore, O ye kings. Be instructed, ye judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and ye perish from the way. When his wrath is kindled but a little, what else comes? Blessed are all they that put their trust in him. Right? This is why 
when those arise against us, we go to the word. Because the word gives us such testimonies of the Lord. And um, there's much more that could be said there, but for the sake of time, I'll have to move on. Now, in view of that, consider verse 21. Consider that in view of kiss the sun. Thou hast rebuked the proud that are cursed, which do err from thy commandments. God will rebuke his enemies. The psalmist knows he must not fret or be anxious. Yes, we publicly witness. Yes, we preach and teach the truth of the word. We support righteous laws in the, the civil realm. We witness against the evils of this age. We pray for godly lawmakers, on and on and on. But in all of that, we are relying that God will do what is right and he will do what is just. He will rebuke the proud and the accursed. We have no doubt of that. We often see that even in this life, but especially it will happen in the life to come. But I wonder if you notice the qualities of God's enemies. They are proud and they are accursed and they err from the commandments. That defines the enemies of God just as much as we are defined as strangers in the earth who hold to the testimonies of God. Proud and accursed. Now maybe you are convicted by the fact that you have been proud in breaking the commandments of God. And with some alarm now, you are seeing here that God is going to break you and that God is your enemy, that you are even accursed. And that is what you are, friend, if you are outside of Christ. You know, the good news, the reason the Christian who in themselves is just as liable to the curse of God, the good news that the Christian has is found in the thought that their curse can be taken away in Jesus Christ. Galatians 3 says, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. The Christian says this, I readily admit I deserve to be cursed for breaking God's commandments. That is my due reward. It's what I deserve. But my hope is this, that Christ was made a curse on my behalf to take away the curse from me so that I have eternal blessedness. That in my place, the Redeemer, think on this as we come to the communion table, think on this, that the Redeemer was made a curse in my place. Blessed Savior made a curse and a reproach on my behalf. This is the gospel and this is the good news and you apprehend it simply by faith as we heard in Galatians 3. I am the proud, I am the accursed, but Christ has taken away my curse and has humbled me greatly so that he would exalt me in due time. Flee to the Lord Jesus and take him as a curse for you and he will be your heavenly advocate and you will begin your pilgrimage to heaven well in our remaining time and we'll be brief here let's conclude with the way of the pilgrim let's go to the beginning of this portion in verse 17 deal bountifully with thy servant that i may live and keep thy word now in the face of his distress and face of whatever horde or prince or army is against him 
the psalmist asks God that he would live. That he would live. That his enemies would not strike him down. You know, I don't want to just pause here because sometimes we go the wrong direction. Though we as pilgrims greatly desire to be in heaven, we have no death wish. Right? We are not suicidal. We don't see suicide as the, the means to get to heaven. That is not the will of God for us. He takes us when he wills. He will take us when our labors for him are finished. Until then, as better men have said, we are immortal under whatever strain we labor under. In fact, the Christian's life is necessary as a testimony for Christ in the face of God's enemies. We want to live to be witnesses for the truth of God's word, that others may know him, that we may serve others in the body of Christ on the earth because that is more needful for us at this time, as Paul has said. We even want to be a living testimony against God's enemies, kiss the sun and turn from wickedness. So the psalmist argues his petition that I may live and keep thy word. What an argument that is. Even when he says deal bountifully with me, see his purpose. Why does he say deal bountifully with me? Is it so that I may have the things of this world? No, not at all. But that I may live according to the word of God. This is his argument for why he should live. And why he should not be destroyed. That's a wondrous argument to pray, isn't it? If you seek the Lord to keep your life in the midst of strain and trial, say, oh God, it is because I want to keep the word of God. I want to follow Christ. This is what strangers in the earth do. They resolve to walk according to the word. And they find their refuge in the word. Verse 20 says, this is a beautiful verse. My soul breaketh, that means aches, for the longing that it hath unto thy judgments at all times. Now there is meant to be an aching in the soul of the Christian for the word of God. And oftentimes, you must understand this, the Lord will bring us difficulties in our lives so that we will turn to the Lord and say, you know what, there is nothing in the earth that I desire but the Lord. And I will, with aching desire, turn to his word so that I may hear a word from my beloved. You know, in your own experience, undoubtedly, if you have any Christian experience, that what happens when the great trials and the difficulties and the strain comes? Where do you go? It's like the Lord finally moves you to his word and, his pr and prayer. And it's like he will, he will, he will make you Christian. See that you are a pilgrim on the earth and he will move you to the word of God and he will do whatever he has to do, right? Raise up enemies, have you suffer reproach and shame so that you will turn here with aching and longing. And so in like manner in verse 24, thy testimonies also are my delight and my counselors. You know, just the Christian delights in the word of God. They are my delight. You have to say it, you have to mean it, you have to believe it. They are your delight. You must get to that place. You know, there, I, I spoke about some of the attitudes some have to the law of God. There is no resignation in the mind of the Christian that they must keep the commandments. They delight in the word of God. You must get to that place yourself where the commandments of God are your joy. But you say, well, pastor, the testimonies of the Lord are not especially my delight today. 
I suppose I like them maybe even, but I'm not captivated by them as the psalmist was. Well, you know, I think first you have to recognize a bit here that you are hearing first and foremost Christ in this psalm, aren't you? It's the God-man who says this with a true heart, a full heart. Then said, I lo, I come in the volume of the book it is written of me. I delight to do thy will, O my God. Yea, thy law is in my heart, within my heart. Psalm 40. This is especially Christ. But all Christians are in Christ to delight in the testimonies of God. You know, naturally, our eyes, and I, I suppose you've experienced this, you open the word of God, and sometimes our eyes are just dull and glazed over, and we just sort of scan the page, put it away. I've done my duty. I guess I move on with my day. That's not how it ought to be. Not at all. So I would ask you, if that's you, and it's been me at times, I will say, are you praying as in verse 18? Open thou mine eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of thy law. That is the habit of the man who delights in the law of God, in the word of God. To ask God to open the eyes of his understanding of the word of God. Make sure you do that as well. And when you come to the law as this man did, meditate on it. Ask yourself, why is this commandment good? Perhaps I, I opened with this uh, a bit. I opened the thought. Maybe I'll leave it with you. Consider, especially in the Gospels, how did Jesus Christ keep this commandment? How did he magnify the first commandment, the third commandment, the fourth commandment, the fifth commandment, as we've seen him on the tree? How did he make it honorable and magnify the law? Meditate on him. Meditate on Christ and how he kept the law. Part of the Christian's meditation on the law is in verse 23, must be to think of how Christ has kept the law. And that will drive everything as you see the beauty of it in the Redeemer. Well, not only is the delight of the word found in our hearts, verse 24 says that the word has its supreme place as your counselor. It must be, absolutely must be. This is where you go for counsel. And those who speak according to it, if they speak not according to it, it's because they have no light in them. The word must be your counselor. Wherever you go for counsel, go to the word first and check what you hear from men according to the word of God. I have even heard long screeds against biblical positions by professing Christians. And their screeds were short on what? Scripture. It's all a bunch of, I feel this or I feel that. The spirit of the age is all that is. God, you know, you think about this, even some of the basics of the gospel. God would not send all men to hell. For sin? Surely God will accept any sincere form of worship. Surely God will not judge those who have never heard the gospel. Surely I have the right to treat one who has treated me poorly, poorly in return. On and on these things go. But our counselor is the word of God. And what the word of God says we do in faith. It's that mentality that makes you a pilgrim and a stranger in the earth. It's that mentality that will make you a reproach to the world. But it is also that mentality that will have God deal with you bountifully. And it's that mentality that will cause you to persevere till you make it to Christ's side. So brethren, you are strangers here. Be persuaded of that and embrace that. Then walk in the commandments of the Lord. That is your pathway forward. You will be mocked. You will be scorned. You will even be persecuted. But be okay with that. 
be uncomfortable with the world, be like the first disciples who counted it joy to be counted worthy to suffer reproach for Christ. And may the world be uncomfortable with you as you grow uncomfortable with the world. So I want to close with the reading of the great cloud of witnesses again. And others had a cruel uh, a trial of cruel mockings and scourgings. Yea, moreover, of bonds and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn asunder, they were tempted, were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and in mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. That is what you ought to be. Mocked and even scourged for being Christ's. But never forget what Jesus says, pilgrim. The world is not worthy of you. So don't try to make yourself worthy to the world. It's a fool's game. You are not worthy of the world. Remain a stranger in the earth and may the good Lord bless you for it. Amen. Please arise for prayer if able. Oh, Lord, our God, help us. Help us to confess that we are strangers and pilgrims on this earth. Help us to love the law of God and help us to meditate upon it. Help us to be very uncomfortable in this world. Help us to not be at ease here. Have our affections more and more conformed uh, to the place that is our permanent residence, heaven. We pray, O oh God, that Christ, who has begun to snatch our heart and take it to heaven, would complete that utterly, that our heart would not be found here, that, yes, we would labor as unto the Lord here, we would serve God's people, and we would love our neighbor as ourselves, but our affections would foremost be where Christ is found. And so help us to suffer shame. Let us uh, walk through this world in the years remaining that each of us have in such a manner that will never bring shame on Christ, even if such a walk will bring shame on us from the world, recognizing that all of our shame is taken away in Jesus. Bless this people. If any here do not know the Redeemer savingly, give them saving faith today. And for the rest of us, help us to walk as pilgrims towards heavenly Zion. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.